Father, we do ask that you would take your word and apply it to our hearts, that you would make it effectual, effectual to bring those who do not know you into a relationship with you to bring salvation, effectual in the hearts of those who um, need its encouragement, need its conviction, its correction. Lord, only you know exactly what everyone needs as I read and as we study uh, the word together. And so I ask the Lord that you would do it by the power of your Holy Spirit, apply it in ways that I cannot bring change, bring conviction, bring comfort in perfect measure and in perfect uh, way, in a perfect way uh, to those exactly where they have need. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So with, uh, with that, with those words that we just read as our confession as to what we believe about the, the word of God, its power to transform, how we should give attention to it let's let's turn to our our scripture reading for today it's first thessalonians chapter one uh, from the second part of verse five uh, through verse 10 through the end of the chapter now it's really hard in chapter one to draw a sharp line between the first part of the chapter which we looked at last week and this second part of the chapter so what i'm going to do is i'm actually going to start at the beginning of the chapter as I, as I read, sort of a, a running start, if you will. And I'll tell you when we hit the new reading for today. Now, the first part won't be on the screen, so you can either just listen or you, or you can even better. You can turn to 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, we've got Bibles in the, uh, in the chair racks in front of you, and you can go directly to 1 Thessalonians uh, if you turn to page 1255. Okay, so let's, let's read this. And, um, and if you're able... Please uh, stand as I do, and when I'm done, I'm going to make the declaration that this is the word of the Lord, and invite you to respond by saying, thanks be to God. Okay, so 1 Thessalonians, starting at verse 1, this is what we read last week, this is how the letter begins. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Okay, so that was last week. Keep following along as we read from this morning's text, continuing verse 5 through the end of the chapter in verse 10. Well, continues, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we not need say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So it's a great time actually to kind of jump into the first chapter of this letter. It's, uh, it's, it's September, kids, you're back in... Uh, back in school it's actually you know the seasons are changing it's a reset moment for everyone in in some ways and so we're starting a series looking at this letter to the Thessalonians and the first chapter helps us to do a little bit of a of a spiritual reset that's what Paul's doing before he gets into the heart of the letter he's defining some some terms specifically some terms for us that help us understand what a Christian is that's what we looked at last week and what a Christian 
church is. That's what I want to concentrate on this week. Now, like I said, you can't, you can't draw a, a bright, sharp line actually between last week and this week, between the first part of the chapter and the second part of the, the chapter. Um, but, but we looked at last week, you know, what a, what a Christian is, and I want to look at it from a slightly different angle this week. Remember what we said last week. A Christian is someone who has a new identity uh, that is demonstrated by observable evidence and who recognizes that they have been, what they have been given is the result of undeserved grace. Right? A new identity verified by observable evidence and a recognition that what they have received is undeserved grace. Now Paul's continuing to describe that in the second half of the chapter, explain that a little bit more. But this week what I want to do is look at it from a more corporate perspective or at least frame it that way. In other words, he's not writing, we have to remember, to, individual Christi- to an individual Christian not waiting to one Christian. He's writing to a church, not just one follower of Jesus, but a gathering, a collection, a coming together of followers of Jesus. So similar to how I asked the question last week, right, what's a Christian? Let's ask this week, frame it this way, what's a Christian church? Right, and as I maintained uh, last week, I think that this is a relevant question for someone, whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, because if you're a Christian in a church, well, then how do you know, how do you know you're in a faithful one? Right? What should you be looking for? But, but the same question applies to someone who's not a Christian because if you were to ever consider, if you were ever to even think about coming into a church, what should you look for? Right? How, would you, how would you know that it's a, it's a faithful church? So that's the question. And, and this isn't the only way to, to answer that, to define what a Christian church is or a faithful church is, but I think there's some really helpful concepts here that Paul gives us as he continues to describe what the Thessalonians are are like. Now, this is in the bulletin if you want to follow along, but he describes the Christian church as a community that is characterized by joy, by mission, by repentance, and by hope. And I want to look at those four characteristics, right? Joy, mission, repentance, and hope. Four characteristics of a Christian church. Now, let's start with joy. Paul makes the comment in verse 6 that the Thessalonians received the word, that is, their, that is the message of Jesus, received it in much affliction. Now, in doing this, they became, Paul says, they became imitators of us. In other words, imitators of Paul, Silas, Timothy. Right? And if you go back to Acts 17, which is when Paul and Silas and Timothy, when they went to Thessalonica and they, and they brought the good news about Jesus to the, to the people of Thessalonica, when they did that originally, you'll read in Acts 17 that they experienced a great deal of affliction at the hands of the religious and the civil authorities in, in town. It wasn't fair. Paul and his friends were slandered. They were misunderstood. But the Jewish religious leaders were jealous of all the attention that they were getting, and they organized a mob and they tried to, to capture them. Now, Paul, Silas, Timothy, right, they make it out of town safely. They, they escape. But guess who stayed? They leave. Guess who stayed? All the followers of Jesus who, who had come to faith in Christ through their ministry. They're there. They're the ones that Paul left behind. Now, obviously, the heat continued to be turned up on the Christians left in Thessalonica after Paul left. So Paul could say that they had become imitators of them, of Paul, of Silas, and Timothy. Now, interesting though, not just imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy, imitators of the Lord, he says, right? Talking about Jesus. And Jesus had predicted as much, right? That if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to, in this respect, be an imitator of me. John chapter 15, verse 18. It says that Jesus told his disciples, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. In other words, don't be shocked when this happens. 
Don't be shocked. Don't pretend as if, wait a minute, what? This, this isn't what I signed up for. Right? Because in, in a sense, I think, and I'll speak at least for myself, but I think it's true of the broader church in our corner of the world, I think, I think we are a little bit soft, right? We have to admit that we are. And, and it came home to me just a, a couple weeks ago. I heard the story, um, and I never heard it before, but it was of an, of an Iranian woman uh, named Marzi, who grew up in a Muslim home in, in, the, in, the, in the nation of Iran, she, but she became a follower of Jesus. And it's a fascinating story how she became a follower of Jesus, but she became a follower of Jesus, and she got connected to a local church in Iran, an undercover church, right, underground. And actually, she was able to leave the country for about a year. She attended Bible school in Turkey, and while she was in Turkey, she met another woman who was from Iran who was also a follower of Jesus, and the two of them decided to go back to Iran. And to go back to, into, into Iran, to their home city, Tehran, who's the, which is the capital of Iran. They did this in 2006, and they became a two-woman Bible distribution network. Thousands of Bibles they had smuggled into the country, and they had a storage unit in their apartment complex, and they stored them there, and every night they would stuff their backpacks with, you know, 100 Bibles or so, um, and they would go and they would hit, they would hit the neighbors, neighborhoods. They had, they had a map. They would mark where they had been the night before and they would go to the next neighborhood over and they would just put them in mailboxes. And they did this for about two years before a revolutionary guard um, saw Marzi handing a Bible to someone in a restaurant. And that's all it took, right? They, they, they followed her. They figured out who she was. They went to her apartment and the two of them you know, these two Christian women, they were arrested. No, no written charges. They didn't have any, you know, they didn't have their rights read to them or whatever. It's just off you go into detention. Now, Meanwhile, here in New Jersey, <laughs> I sit, right, where, where, where we have had a, a grace period, more or less, for the last couple hundred years, where following Jesus has been viewed relatively favorably, respectably, in most places at least, right? But instead of viewing it as grace, I think our temptation sometimes is to, is to take it for granted, as if this is the default position of human history, as if Jesus promised that if we just said things in the right way, if we just did things the right way, if we just stood up for our, our rights the way that we should, that, it's, that everything's just going to go comfortably for us. But he never said that. And that's certainly not the way that it worked for Jesus. Right? He always said things perfectly, always did it the right way, always treated people perfectly, exactly as they should have been treated. And yet, how did he end up? Misunderstood, mistreated, and ultimately dead. And then we're shocked to learn that when we hitch our car to his train, that our tracks often lead to the same destination that he was going to. We shouldn't be shocked. When the church experiences affliction, it's, it's imitating Paul, but even more, it's imitating Jesus. But the point, actually, here in 1 Thessalonians 1 is even more than, than just imitating Jesus in affliction, imitating uh, Paul in affliction. It's how they handle the affliction, right? Because it says the Thessalonians received the word in much joy, right? With the joy of the Holy Spirit, right? Now, this increases the stakes a little bit because, it, because it's one thing to endure affliction, endure affliction, to, to, you know, to, to experience it, but to do it with joy. It almost sounds a little bit twisted, right? Did it mean you're supposed to like it? Eh, that's, not, that's not what it means. It means that there is a certain sense of satisfaction that in our suffering, we are imitators of the apostles and of Jesus himself, right? Jesus himself, he looked for a deeper joy in the midst of his affliction. That was set before him in order to endure the cross. That's what it says in Hebrews 12, 1, right? He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. 
Paul was the one who would write to the Philippians. We're going to sing the song again later tonight that is based on, the, uh, on what he says in, in, in Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always, which would just be a nice pithy saying you could put on your mirror until you remember that he wrote this while he was in prison. He didn't just write it like, you know, blithely, like just throw it out there. He wrote it while he was in prison. And it wasn't just Paul who acted like this. Acts chapter 5, we read about the time when all the apostles were arrested. This is just after Jesus' resurrection, his ascension back into heaven. And the Jewish leaders are very upset because they continue to talk about this Jesus. And some of the leaders want to kill the apostles. They end up just letting them go with like a stern, you know, but intimidating warning. But it's it's the reaction of the apostles that's most interesting. Acts chapter 5, verse 41 The apostles were freed, and it says, they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. The name of of, of Jesus, that is. Now, if you step back, right, and, and, and you think about the question of why God allows Christians in his church to experience affliction, that's a big question. Right? The why questions are always tricky because you're trying to get into the infinite mind of an infinite God, and you can never think that you'll be able to figure out all the whys of everything but as Paul keeps going here in the in the in the next few verses and he talks about the next three characteristics of the church right its mission its 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 uh, its culture of repentance its its hope as he talks about those things it actually gives us a little bit of a hint in how into how God uses the, the affliction of the church into the why In other words, the first characteristic of the church, namely joy in the midst of suffering, actually leads into the next three. Because joy in the midst of affliction actually propels us to mission. It leads us to repentance and it solidifies our hope. That's what was happening in Thessalonica. Let me show you how. Move to the next point. See how the joy that the church experienced in the midst of its affliction actually became the fuel for its mission to the world. Jesus gave his followers a mission. When he left them, you remember what it was? Told them to go into all the world to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus and to baptize them, to bring them into the the church. That was their mission. And here in 1 Thessalonians 1, we see how the joyful affliction of the church there in Thessalonica was actually propelling the mission. Paul says, verse 7, that they're an example in what they're experiencing and in how they're experiencing it. It is an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, right? These were the two Greek provinces of the Roman Empire, right? Of all the provinces, these were the two Greek ones, both of them, right? And all the other Christians are being encouraged, being encouraged by their joyful suffering. But it's not only there, and it's not only, it's not only the Christians. Verse 8, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, Paul says, but their faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything now everywhere i mean might be a little bit of an exaggeration but you get the you get the rhetorical point that he's trying to make the example of the thessalonians it's getting around and it's making paul's job actually easier paul's still preaching right he's still preaching the good news about jesus everywhere he goes but the example of the thessalonians is making it easy for him because it says their example has it's it's sounded forth that's what it says in verse 8, right? It's a, it, it, it's a Greek word. It's found only here in the New Testament, but it's used in lots of other places in different Greek literature, right? And it's used to describe things like a, like a clap of thunder sounds forth, right? The, the, the roar of a crowd, the roar of the ocean, a trumpet that fills the room. That's what it's talking about. That's how their witness was spreading, like a, like a roaring fire. 
Now, again, just to be clear, Paul's not saying that the preaching of the gospel using words isn't necessary. It's absolutely necessary. It's very necessary. But he's saying that when you have a powerful witness of joy in the midst of affliction, the words actually become the easy part. Right? Think about this for a second. When, when Marzi and her friend Miriam, when they were arrested in Iran, they were sent to a detention center to await processing there, right? And the conditions were horrible, right? They didn't go around pretending that it was easy, right? They're pretending that, they, that the conditions weren't terrible, they were. But they decided, even though they admitted that they were afraid, they decided that they were going to go uh, into, the, into the hallways and amongst the cells when they had the opportunity to the 60 or so other women that were crammed into this really small wing of this prison. And they went around just introducing themselves, saying, hi, I'm Marzi. And they introduced themselves, right? Instead of cowering in a corner, they went around and they were friendly. And the other women, especially, and especially the guards, said they found it incredibly strange to see such friendly people in the midst of such a dark dungeon of a place, right? But even more strange to everyone watching was that Marzi and Miriam clung to their faith in, in Jesus, even though it was their faith that had brought them to prison, right? The other inmates, they just couldn't understand. Now, let me ask you a question. When they were out of the prison, when they were just on the streets of Tehran, how much opportunity do you think, how much credibility do you think the words of the gospel would have had to those people in that setting, right? Spoken by two women. Almost nothing, right? The words would have had, would have had no effect. But here in prison, because of the unshakable joy that they had in Jesus, all of a sudden, their faith wasn't so easy to dismiss. You couldn't dismiss the words, right? The words about Jesus that would not have penetrated into a hard heart before, now they were received eagerly by these dozens of desperate women, right? They wanted to know what it was that they saw in these two that was just different than they had ever seen before. The joy that they had in the midst of their affliction made the words that they then shared easy. The preaching part was easy because the example had gone forth. Now, this is what Marzi said. She said, before we go to prison, we had to pray and ask God to show us the right person to speak about our faith. We had to be cautious. But in that place, we had a great opportunity to talk to anyone and no one could stop us. They're already in jail. What are you going to do? I believe God intentionally wanted us to stay there. Now, that might be a hard truth to hear, right? But that's a truth. That's actually a truth that we need to hang on to. Because if your theology only gives you a God who hands everything to you easily in this life, just layers on the leisure, right? If that's your theology, if that's your understanding of who God is, then your faith will crumble when affliction comes. But if your God, the one Paul presents here, if this is your God, then you will be able to see any affliction or suffering that you might face as something that God might actually intentionally be using as part of his mission. That's the second characteristic of the church. It's mission to the world, driven by joy in the midst of its suffering. Now, the third characteristic is repentance. And you can recognize a faithful church when it is characterized by this, by a reflex to turn away from its sin and turn instead to God. Right? And that's the reputation that this church in Thessalonica has. That's what the other Greeks in the region, that's what they were all talking about. That's what Paul says in verse 9. The report about the church is that they turned away from idols and were turning to the true and living God. Right? It's being reported. 
People are talking about it. Now, there is a certain once-and-done aspect to this turning from idols, right? That's what happens at conversion. When we are converted, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we turn away from those things that we formerly worshipped and saw as ultimate, and we turn to God. There is a once-and-done aspect to it, right? Our old allegiances, they're cast aside. We turn away from our old beliefs, our old activities, the things we used to look for for satisfaction. They no longer control us, right? That's what happens once and done. But there also is something that continues to happen over and over and over again in the life of a Christian, where this regularly becomes our practice, where we see things that we're tempted towards, idols that that begin to pull us back and we consciously turn, we turn, we turn, we're constantly repenting, right? And this, when people see this, becomes incredibly hard to contest, right? Scoffers can always argue against philosophies, but it is almost impossible to deny a changed life. A life that used to be controlled by a false God that is now pursuing the true God. Now, a radical change in someone's life, just on the face of it, right, doesn't mean that the change is a good one. Lots of people, lots of people change. It doesn't always mean it's a, it's a good one. People turn away from things all the time. But you have to turn to the right thing. You have to turn to the true and the living God. And that's what Paul's saying here. Now, if you go back to the why question of the church's suffering and their affliction, right, this is also something that suffering and affliction can help with, right? If you, if you understand it greatly, affliction drives us to humility. It points out our idols. It helps us with this. It rips away our arrogance and pride, right? It's somewhat easier, you must admit, you have to admit, it's somewhat easier um, to hide your idols when things are going well in your life. It is, right? If your idol is financial security, right, if that's where you find your sense of safety, right, then it's much easier to hide that idol, to kind of keep, as long as you have all the money you need. Right? But if the stock market crashes and all your money is wiped away and you completely go to pieces, then your false God, right, it's exposed. Right? If your idol is your reputation as a career professional, then it's easy to hide that idol so long as you experience nothing but career success. But if you get laid off, you lose your job, you can't find a new one, your false idol is what? It's exposed. Right? If your idol is your physical health, then it's easy to hide that idol as long as you're healthy. But if you get a, a bad diagnosis, an, an incurable disease, then your false idol, it's your, your false god, it's exposed. Now, I'm not saying that's easy to have your, your idols exposed, but if our lives are really, even without our knowing it, oftentimes built around these false gods rather than the true and the living God, right, then wouldn't we want to know it? And wouldn't we want, in our clear-headed moments, want a God who would be so loving as to strip away, to clear away anything that might be deceiving us and giving us a false sense of security? Have you ever, have you ever noticed um, how incredibly uncomfortable and awkward it can be in social situations where everyone that you're talking to just seems so supremely confident in themselves? Right, where they have no sense of their own weakness, where they don't display it. Everything's just great, they're marvelous, they're perfect, their lives are this, their lives are that, right? I recently was at a, um, a social gathering with a large number of people uh, who come from a, a background of addiction. They're in various stages of, of recovery, participants in, uh, in organizations like Alcoholic Anonymous, other recovery programs like that. Right? Now, they aren't, to be clear, they, they weren't people who were actively in a place of addiction rate now and their past wasn't the topic of any of the conversations that we that we had at this this gathering but you could just tell by the gentleness of their hearts that they all at some point had come to the end of themselves that they had faced their complete and total inability to rescue themselves 
And, and I said to Stacy afterwards how incredibly disarming, how incredibly relaxing it was to be talking to someone who was acutely aware of their weakness, not beating themselves up, but just with no need. They felt no need to impress you. No arrogant assumption that they should even try to impress you. Now think about this. If this were the reputation of the church as a place where people were regularly made aware of and welcomed being made aware of their idols, weren't shocked by it, weren't surprised by it, and looked to turn in repentance away from them, if that was just the culture and the way the church was, if these were the kind of people that were to be found in the church, then would not that be the most attractive place for someone to come? If that were our report, what would the impact be? That's the fourth characteristic. Remember the first three, right? Or that, that's, the, uh, that's the third characteristic, right? Faithful church, joy in the midst of affliction, right? Mission to the world, repentance away from idols. Now finally, right, you can't just turn away from something. You do need to turn to something greater. That's this idea of hope. Hope in, in Jesus specifically. This is critical, right? For the church to be the church, it can't just have some kind of undefined hope. It can't just be a wish. You need to, be, you need to do... You need to find something better than just a less destructive idol. Right? See, that's the, that, that actually becomes the limitation of many, of many recovery programs, right? Formal programs, maybe, or even just your own kind of efforts to be a better person, right? That's where they come into, a, uh, where they face some limitations, right? You might see some, some results. You might see some, some modest external changes. You might be, might be a better person by comparison, but you'll never be a new person. You'll never be a new person with a new identity unless you put your hope in the Lord Jesus, right? Anything, anything less than that is just trading a more destructive idol for a less destructive, destructive idol, right? It's kind of like saying, you know, if I were to say, well, I used to sleep next to, a, uh, uh, to an armed hydrogen bomb, and now I just sleep next to a live grenade. Okay. I mean, it's not any safer. Now, one will have less social impact than the others, Right? You will harm less people when the one goes off rather than the other, but you are still dead. Right? In the same way, right? think about it like this, and more personal for me, putting your hope in chocolate ice cream has far fewer consequences. Right? Consequences are far less, far less collateral damage than putting hope in, 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 in drugs in a life of crime. But neither hope in drugs and crime nor hope in chocolate ice cream will save me from the real danger that I'm in. Right, look at verse 10. Right, verse 10 is like a mini theology of Jesus, all packed into one verse. When the Christians in Thessalonica, when they turned from idols to serve the living and true God, they were turning to an expectant hope in a saving Messiah. Right? The Son from heaven, it says in verse 10. That's who they're waiting for. In other words, a Messiah God who has ascended into heaven and who will return again. That's the one who's the source of our hope. Right? The one, look again at verse 10, who was raised from the dead. In other words, a resurrected Messiah God who died but didn't stay dead. That's the source of our hope. Right? He's the one, look again at verse 10, who was named Jesus. In other words, an historical Messiah God. Not an imaginary concept, not a literary figure, an actual person who lived in history and had a real name. Jesus. He's the source of our hope. Now finally, look again at verse 10. He's the one who delivers us from the wrath to come. Right? In other words, a sacrificial Messiah who gave his life in place of ours so that we might live. Now you put that all together, right? The theology of Jesus all together. And what do you have in verse 10? 
you have the basis for a confident, expectant hope because you have, in one verse, a description of a Savior who, though he was eternal God, assumed a human nature and took the name of Jesus and lived a real, historical, and perfect life, who died an atoning death to deliver us from God's justice and the condemnation that our idolatry deserved who ascended into heaven and who reigns and rules over its church and its mission and who will return once again to not only bring an end to our affliction but to bring justice to those who oppress and to bring comfort to those who suffer. That's our hope. Do you know that Jesus? That Jesus, his identity, his work, that must be at the center of any institution that calls itself a Christian church. Now, to say that, to place Jesus at the very center of, of everything. That's not just an ego trip on Jesus' part. It's the most loving thing that he can do. And, and proclaiming him, when we go into the world and say, this is the way, this is the one, the true, the only way, right? That's not, that's not thin-skinned arrogance on our part. It is absolutely the most loving thing that we can do to anyone is to tell them about this because Jesus and only Jesus can save us from our sins and, and satisfy our deepest longing. And therefore, when we place Jesus at the center of everything that is the definition of a church, that is the definition of a Christian, we are doing the most loving, the most true thing we can possibly do, right? That's why Paul starts this letter to the Thessalonians that way, because he wants to ground them in who they are. He wants to remind them what it means to be called a Christian and to be a part of a Christian church. October 7th, 2009, that's when Marzi was taken from her cell in the Iranian prison where she had been held. She was placed on a bus. They were taking her to court. She had been in prison at this point for eight months. She spent 14 days in that original detention center, and then they transferred her to one of the most infamous prisons in all of Tehran. She was going to finally, though, have this day, October 7th, 2009, she was finally going to have her charges brought before a judge after eight months of waiting in prison. A very important day. But, listen to this, October 7, 2009 was important for a very different reason. October 7, 2009 was the four-year anniversary of when Marzi was baptized. She was in Turkey, in Bible school, and the church that she was a part of there had gathered that evening on the coast of one of the seas, and one of the water. And, and as she stepped forward, the pastor, as a testimony before her baptism, asked her three questions as a testimony of her faith. He asked her, number one, are you a Christian? He asked her, number two, are you called to follow Jesus? And then he asked her to explain, what do you mean by that? Are you a Christian? Are you called to follow Jesus? What do you mean by that? Now, those questions at that time were relatively easy for her to, to answer. She testified to her faith in Jesus. She vowed to follow him no matter what. Now, she's sitting in a courtroom next to this new lawyer that someone had found for her to, to try to get her in front of a judge. And one of the frivolous charges against her, were, were, they were dropped, but the charge of apostasy, blasphemy against Allah and abandoning Islam, that charge stayed, and that was the most serious of the charges. And the judge examined her, and he had three questions that he asked her. And to her amazement, they were the exact same three questions that had been asked to her at the sea, at the, at the, at the, at the edge of the water before her baptism. Are you a Christian? The judge asked her. And she said, yes. Are you called to follow Jesus? And she said, yes. And then he said, explain to me what you mean by that. And she said that it meant that Jesus was more than just a prophet. That he was the son of God and he was 
her Savior. Do you see that? This is 1 Thessalonians 1.10 stuff. The Son from heaven raised from the dead who delivers us from the wrath to come. Now the judge tried to scare Marzi, tried to, you know, tell her the wrath that he had the ability to bring against her. He said, you know, you keep on insisting on this, that you will face execution. And she had this long conversation with the judge about what it means to have faith in Jesus. Now this, by the way, was not a sound legal strategy. Her lawyer got very upset, right? He actually tried to intervene and to downplay her statements. Your Honor, she doesn't really mean exactly what she's saying. What she means is, and he told, she told the lawyer to be quiet. She said, no, this is exactly what I mean, right? She didn't back down. Why? Because she knew she had a better lawyer, right? Than this guy who was, who, 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 was, who was standing next to her. She had a better advocate. Jesus Christ the righteous had taken up her case. The judge almost inexplicably ended up transferring the case to a different court. Meant another month and a half for her in prison, more hearings, more opportunities for her to sound forth about the truth of Jesus, but she never backed down. Marzi and Miriam, they never backed down. And then, November 18th, no warning, no explanation, a guard comes into their cell with their release papers. Now, many at this point, many of the guards were actually sympathetic to them. Right? And the prison ward broke out in celebration. Right? They were treated as, as infidels when they arrived. And now the prison ward is breaking into, the, cell, the cellmates have become a congregation of dear friends. Right? The, the power of the gospel had, had turned this wing of the notorious Evan prison into a place of worship. Hell on earth had become a church. Now, things in our community, they're not even close to this. But we can do this. I'm not talking about just Calvary, but the church can do this. We can turn eastern Monmouth and Ocean Counties into a place of worship because that's what followers of Jesus working together in the context of a local church can do as we experience the afflictions that come into our lives with joy as we allow them to propel us into mission as we see what God is doing and understand who Jesus is this is what can happen among us let's pray father we thank you for what you have done for us in Christ we thank you that you have gathered us together in a church that we are never alone that we are connected by the power of the holy spirit to one another in common mission and in common hope lord let that hope drive us drive us and propel us into the world that we might live for you for we pray in jesus name amen